You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. We're going to read from the book of Luke, chapter 24. That should be up on my left side if you don't have your Bible, starting in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you, as you walk? As they stood still, looking sad, then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village that they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told them what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Could you see if you could find? There we go. Uh, this morning we do have Redemption Hill kids for ages two to four. So if that serves you, I'm going to go right across the hallway. Thank you for those who are serving Redemption Hill kids. I just need to do this right out of the gate, and it's really going to make sense at the end of this sermon. Let me just say it, and let me hear it from you. He is risen. He is risen okay. Let me say it one more time. He is risen. He is risen because the Trinity is three, right? He is risen. 
Okay, when we get to the end, you're going to be like, dude. So just put a pin in that. All right, Jesus is indeed risen. Jesus is not only risen on this day, but we corporately celebrate the risen Christ every single Sunday. Even as we rightly place a spotlight on the resurrection of Jesus Christ this morning, let's just not forget that we celebrate the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'll do that again next Sunday. And then the Sunday after that, guess what we're going to be doing? Celebrating the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then, Lord willing, a year from now, we'll continue to do that. Five years from now, we'll continue to 20 years from now. However the Lord would have this church be planted here, that is what we do. It's why we exist. It's why we're here. Holy Scripture shows us that Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday with purpose. The time had come for the plan of God to be fulfilled through Christ. Many of you attended a Good Friday service where you reflected on the terrible yet beautiful cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you. That's good. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was awful and that the Father sent the Son to suffer and die to redeem sinners, right? It was horrific. He suffered. The cross is also beautiful because Jesus paid the debt we owed to God because of our sin. On the cross, the power of sin was broken and forgiveness was given to all who believed. Now, I could stop now and many of you could walk out of here and say, Amen. However, the work of God is not done. If Christ died and stayed in the tomb, we're all in a lot of trouble. If Christ remained in the tomb, we're not worshiping a Savior, but we're worshiping perhaps a prophet or a great teacher, which Jesus certainly was. Islam would be correct in their evaluation of Jesus. He's a great prophet. Well, I have good news for you. Before, before Islam showed up on the scene in the 7th century, the Apostle Paul addressed the issue at hand. Here's what Paul said. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? You kind of see the argument he's making here. How could you even say there is no resurrection? Because Christ indeed did rise. And then he continues. Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead... Paul's like, if, if I'm wrong, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. What's the point of us gathering if Jesus did not rise from the dead? But he did. And that's why we're here this morning. The Son of God rose from the dead to prove that he has the power and authority not, o- not only over sin, but also over death. Jesus is risen to give life, and life to many. Jesus is risen to restore the image of God's people. All people have been made in God's image and likeness, but because of sin, we've marred that image. But the path back toward restoring that image is faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So yeah, we have a 
every reason to celebrate this morning, to rejoice, and to give, give thanks to God. I remind you of all these precious truths because today we're looking at a story that tells us how God has revealed himself to man so that man can be spiritually raised from death to life. And then one day, physically go from death to life. So let me pray because I need God's help. And then we'll get into Luke 24. Heavenly Father, we rejoice this morning and every single morning and every single Sunday. We rejoice in the good work that you have done through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as I preach, my, my prayer is to be faithful to what you've already spoken. And I trust that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you would indeed be at work in minds and hearts in front of these precious saints that are before me. So God, we look to you as we look at your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How about this as a proposition for you? Christianity is not a religion based upon evidence. Got the apologetics guy in the back looking at me like, what did you just say? Since the enlightenment of the 17th century, how we understand Christianity has trended in a direction that asks for evidence to prove the events recorded in Holy Scripture. When you attempt to understand the Christian faith through the prism of evidence, you always ask for more proof. Oftentimes, it's just not ever enough. Perhaps you can continue to ask questions until you arrive at your own conclusions. We say that all the time in life, right? You have a particular conclusion in your mind, and you're going to gather the evidence you want in order to support the conclusion you've already had. Now, I'm not arguing against uh, defending your faith when someone asks you a good question, right? I'm not against the study and the teaching of apologetics. In, in Acts 17, as a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul defends the Christian faith before the Greek leaders at the Oropagus, which is Mars Hill. Paul even uses Greek poets to prove the Christian faith. So all this is fine, but it does not make Christianity an evidence-based religion. So if, Christian, if, if my proposition is true, if Christianity is not an evidence-based religion, it's not, it's not founded on that, then what is it based upon? The Christian faith has always been a faith in which God reveals himself. He reveals himself. Christianity is a religion of revelation. Revelation is the foundation of the Christian faith. Consider the difference in perspective between an evidence approach and a revelation approach to Christianity. Sometimes when a person approaches the Christian faith desiring evidence, there is a temptation to fit God into your personal perception. Right? That's the temptation. The primary goal, however, for an evidence-based approach is to gather evidence and to create your own narrative or understanding of who God is. This is especially true with skeptics. When a person approaches the Christian faith, accepting that God has revealed himself, then we ask questions about how we fit into God's world. 
Now, I understand the presumption of approaching the Christian faith through the lens of Revelation. A significant theme in the entire Bible is that God reveals himself to mankind. You can still ask evidence-based questions. But now the questions have a starting point to work from. God has revealed himself through creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Um, go, to, go to Romans 1. God has revealed himself through every person that has ever been born, right? Every person ever born is born in God's likeness and image. God's likeness and image is stamped onto people. I mean, do you want to know what humanity has been trying to do ever since it existed? Ask questions about God. It is because you have a soul, and my dog Winston doesn't have a soul, right? In which we know God exists because man has been struggling and trying over and over to know who God is. On Monday, I took the girls to the Kansas City Zoo, and after looking at like 200 animals, we, uh, we finally got to the orangutans. And uh, Izzy made an astute observation that the difference between orangutans and humans is that God created us with souls. God has revealed himself to man in so many ways that no one is actually without excuse, Romans 1 verse 20. In theological terms, we say God has generally revealed himself to all people, but God's revelation goes deeper. God has revealed himself through the word, the son of God, the John 1.1. 1, 1. And through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God continues to reveal himself. Today's passage from Luke is all about revelation. Luke 24, verses 13 to 35, which Rob read, tells us how God revealed that the Son of God rose from the dead. Now here's my warning from looking at the details of today's passage. If you are willing to grant that the Christian faith is a religion of revelation, generally to all and specific to some, then everything can change for you. Everything changes. There's a massive difference between accepting what has been revealed than trying to discover what you cannot find. So what is going on in Luke 24? Two men are traveling west from Jerusalem, and they're going to the town called Emmaus. It's the Sunday after Jesus was crucified, verse 13. And they heard that the body of Jesus was not in the tomb. Without a doubt, questions were swirling through their minds. Like The question on the table for these two men traveling to Emmaus from Jerusalem is, what happened to the body of Jesus? And why? Why did someone take his body, right? That's what I would be thinking. Then Jesus joined them on the road, but the two men did not recognize Jesus. I find that point interesting. Like, what's, what's up with that? Like, they clearly knew who Jesus was. We're following Jesus prior. Jesus shows up on the scene, and, and just it's like another dude just kind of joined him. I find it interesting because it proves that you can stare at something for so long and still not know what you're looking at. The question we need to tackle is the expectations of the two men on the road to Emmaus. Let's look at the exchange between Jesus and the two men. And I quote, 
Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened these days? Like these men are like, how, how do you not know what's going on? And Jesus said to them, what things? You can tell he's like kind of like leading the witness. You know, it's like, what do you mean? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him, which was the most horrific way one could die in the first century. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So their hopes were crushed. I mean, take note that according to these two Jews, it was the Jews who murdered Jesus. They call out their religious leaders while simultaneously believing that their redemption needs to be from Roman persecution and occupation. Redemption was political, and their shot of redemption was killed, right, by their own. On their minds were moments like the uh, Maccabean Revolt. You don't read, read this in Scripture, you read it in other historical documents. It took place 160-ish years before the birth of Christ. Basically, the Maccabean Revolt was a significant conflict between the Jews and the Greeks who were occupying the land at the time. The goal of the revolt by the Jews was to get their land back. They wanted national independence. Americans talk about the Revolutionary War, and the Jews in the first century would point back to the failed struggle of the Maccabean Revolt. These two men on the road to Emmaus longed for a national Israel. But Jesus did not come to free people from their politics, at least not yet. What these men needed more than political freedom was freedom from the power of sin and death. That's what they needed. The only way for them to be free is to see what God has already revealed. Take a look at verses 15 and 16, and then I'm going to jump to verse 31. We see several ways in which our resurrected Christ is revealed. But first I want to point something out. And I quote, While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Okay, so they didn't know. Now let's bump to verse 31. And it says, their eyes were opened. So eventually their eyes were opened and they did recognize him. Now the unspoken but critical ingredient for a person to have their eyes opened and to, and to see and believe in the resurrected Christ is that we, it's the Holy Spirit that does that work. We read elsewhere in Holy Scripture that it is God the Holy Spirit who causes the blind to see. Now, from Luke, there are at least four ways in which the Spirit reveals the resurrected Christ in this passage. Number one, we see it through the angels. Two, Holy Scripture. Three, the breaking of bread. And four, and frankly the most obvious, is the physical body of Christ. This passage actually is packed with truth, like a, like a neon sign that's blinking in the dark. It proclaims the power of Christ to rise from the dead. Now let's first look at the angels. How did the angels testify to the resurrected Christ? 
inspired by the Holy Spirit, but writing independently from Luke, John tells us that two angels appeared to Mary Magdalene. There's probably two other women there as well, Salome and the mother of Mary. While Mary is weeping in front of the angels at the tomb of Jesus, Jesus shows up on the, th- on the scene. Mary initially thinks Jesus is a gardener. After an exchange between Jesus and Mary, we read, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. In the Gospel of John and Luke, we see the repeated theme of seeing what has been already revealed. So the angels testify to the resurrected Christ, and the men on the road to Emmaus, they've actually like they've heard the news. They knew that women went to the tomb and they saw Jesus, and rumors kind of began to spread, except the rumors were true. They just didn't know it yet. The stone had been rolled away and the body of Jesus, alive and well, was not in the tomb. That's the first way in which the resurrected Christ is revealed is through the angels. The second way in which Christ is revealed is by the Holy Scriptures. This point cannot be overstated because while we are not at the tomb with Mary where where the angels appeared, we do have this book, right? We have this book, this Bible. This book comprising of 66 other books and 35-ish different authors. All testifying to Jesus. Now recognizing their doubt, Jesus says to the two men, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory. And this, this line is so important. And beginning with Moses, so going back to the first five books of the Bible, right? Going back to the Pentateuch, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Think Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel. He interpreted, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus went to the Old Testament Testament and began to explain how the Old Testament points to and testifies about Jesus Christ. What Jesus dismisses, there's two things that he dismisses here, are two popular teachings about the Old Testament that we have currently today. Two popular teachings about the Old Testament that you hear in pulpits throughout America. The first popular teaching is that the Old Testament's about Israel. A lens or filter is used to say that the Old Testament's about Israel or national Israel. And I would respond by saying that the Old Testament is about Israel's God. That is what the Old Testament's about. It is about God working in and through his chosen people to testify about God and to testify about God's plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. The people of God under the Old and New Covenant, so us today, are to testify about how God has revealed himself. This point was reinforced with rebar when we went through, say, the book of Acts several years ago. In Acts 2, the Apostle Peter gives his phenomenal Pentecost sermon, showing how the Old Testament testifies to the crucifixion and resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. So if you go to Acts 2 and you read Peter's sermon, he's quoting the prophet Joel. And in the same sermon, he's, he's saying that King David tells us about Jesus. And in particular, he quotes Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. Frankly, we could sit here all day and do what Jesus did with these two men on the road to Emmaus. We could read about God's plan of redemption through Jesus Christ from the Old Testament, and we could do it all day long. All day long. I'm also arguing against a second popular understanding of the Old Testament these days. It is popular for some pastors and Christians to say that we do not need to hitch our wagon to the Old Testament because Jesus rose. Because Jesus rose, we don't need to worry about the Old Testament. It's happening all across this country. Jesus rose from the dead and we don't need the Old Testament. My response to them would actually be the same as Jesus' response. What did he say? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's the response. Jesus certainly thought it was important to read his Old Testament, and certainly we should as well, because it testifies. It tells us about Jesus. The Old Testament reveals Christ. And Jesus shows us the importance of the Old Testament because of what it reveals. The impact on the men going to Emmaus is expressed in verse 32. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures? Like Jesus was telling them the scriptures, and our, their heart was burning. We cannot overstate the value of God using his Holy Spirit-inspired word to reveal Christ. You know, we can learn a lot from this story. Jesus took them to the Bible to show them how the Bible spoke of his life and works. The Bible told them about the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of this is true according to this passage. We, the new covenant people of God, can also anticipate and look forward to the second coming of Christ. We can anticipate that day by getting our nose into this book. Because it is in this book where we, where we read about Christ's second coming. They were worried about his, the first advent in Christ, but there's a second advent. In many respects, we're in the same boat. And we get our noses into God's word to read about when Christ will return. And then we can wait with eager expectation, knowing that God will fulfill all of his promises. By the way, there are a lot of parallels between this passage and the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. In both situations, the Old Testament was used to reveal Christ. The third way the resurrected Christ is revealed is by breaking bread. Now, back in the day, when I was a younger Christian, I was surprised by that statement. Like, how is it that one breaks bread and all of a sudden one sees Jesus? I find this point fascinating. Between the moment Jesus meets up with the two travelers and the moment they express the burning of their hearts, Jesus breaks bread with them. The original Greek and the English translation is similar to what we see when Jesus instituted the Lord's table 
in Luke 22, and it's also recorded in Matthew and Mark. Bread is broken and blessed. We read in verses 30 and 31, when he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Like this is an overt reference to the Lord's table, which means we come to the table, and we realize God is in the heart of doing business and working in our minds and our hearts. I think the point that Jesus is not making is that unbelievers can participate in the Lord's table, right? The Lord's table is not for evangelism. These two individuals were his followers. And right after the resurrection, Jesus demonstrated his power in unique ways. The point to be made is that through the Lord's table, Christ is continually meeting with his people. The Lord's table is a spiritual moment, a holy moment, in which the people of God remember and reflect on the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If unbelievers, who, like I said, should not participate in the Lord's table, are given the ability to see Christ as they witness the sacrament being practiced, then we praise God. Like, come to the table next Sunday. Or, or if, if Jesus returns between now and next Sunday, guess what? We'll be worshiping together in heaven. Either or, I'm good. The final way Jesus is revealed is obvious. Jesus physically appeared to people. For over 2,000 years, the revelation of Jesus Christ in the resurrection has been attempted to be disproved over and over and over again. That's not shocking, right? There's always skeptics. I've heard that the body of Jesus was stolen off the cross or stolen out of the tomb, right? That's one theory skeptics put out there. I've heard some people say that Jesus had a twin brother or there was an imposter who looked like Jesus. Jesus died and then some dude realized Jesus was like his doppelganger. It's like, oh, I'm going to parade around and pretend I'm Jesus. Another theory says that all the apostles were hallucinating. Heard that one. And then I heard that Jesus never died. He was just unconscious. And then, they, then they put him in the tomb. Aside from the fact that these, I think these views lack merit, right? I think the real reason why there are objections to the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ is that people do not want it to be true. It's very simple. As my friend Brooks Subcheck has said, many of you know him, hardened hearts do not want to believe that Jesus rose from the dead because that would, would require a response of worship. Hardened hearts do not want to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and then proceed. They don't want to believe that he proceeded to reveal himself to many people. Here's how the Apostle Paul testifies to the resurrected Christ in 1 Corinthians. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with, with scriptures. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, the Apostle Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. By the way, probably more than 500, probably brothers, sisters, and children. Most of all, whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, 
as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Again, you see that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen out of nowhere. The apostle Paul believes that one should not be confused. You have a book, you've read the book, and that book, the Old Testament, tells us about Jesus Christ. Further, Jesus did not rise from the dead and then immediately ascend into heaven. No, his work was not done and is not done. Jesus spent 40 days teaching and preaching to his followers. He prepared them to take the message to every nook and cranny across the world. Like It is hard, it is hard for dead men to change the world. It is hard to follow a dead man. But what about following a man who unjustly died and then rose to life? Could you follow him? I know I could. Jesus rose and he showed people the power of God with holes in his wrists and in his feet. When we declare he is risen, we say that Jesus physically rose from the dead. Now here's the quick confession. This is why I began the way I began. I have this natural disposition, and Sharice knows this, my wife, against manufacturing like emotions or actions in church. It's like, if Ryan never does this, but prior church-going situations, if the worship leader says, raise your hands, I, my hands are like, you know, if, if the worship leader says, kneel, I'm standing. <laughs> like, don't tell me what to do. And I've made one exception to kind of that rule over the years. Today, all across the world, pastors proclaim, He is risen. And then the congregation, as you did earlier, says, He is risen indeed. And that response is actually rooted in Holy Scripture. It's in our passage today. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them and gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. So the reason why I'm comfortable with saying, he is risen and eliciting a response is because of what we read right here. The Lord has risen indeed. And in yesteryear, my wife knows that I just did not like that. <laughs> but I'm compelled by Scripture that to say, yes, indeed, he has risen. Jesus did not just spiritually rise from the dead, as theologically liberal churches suggest, but he also physically rose from the dead. God has revealed himself through the physical presence of Jesus Christ. For you, Christian, Resurrection Sunday is actually a day of gratitude, and I hope you are grateful this morning. It is a day when we thank God for Jesus Christ. We thank God for the forgiveness of sin through the atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. We thank God that Jesus broke the power of sin over your life. We thank God that Christ defeated death because of his crucifixion and resurrection. If you're not a Christian, if you were not a Christian, is God doing something in your heart right now? That's my question. Is God doing something in your heart right now? Is God awakening your heart to believe Jesus is the Son of God who died on a cross to redeem your life? Is God doing something in you this morning? If so, I'm going to give you advice, and it's this. 
surrender. Surrender. Surrender to the one who rose from the dead. I am convinced that I could provide all the empirical data that is needed to prove Jesus is risen. I believe the preponderance of evidence supports the claims made by Christ during his earthly ministry. I mean, I had Logan Kane teach an apologetics class about how to defend your faith. I'm, I'm okay with all that. But what is more amazing is that God would choose to reveal himself in the first place to humanity. That is amazing. That is amazing to me. Further, it should be utterly humbling that the Son of God would condescend to redeem his people. And here we are now rejoicing and reveling in what God has done. After Jesus ascended to heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, the Holy Spirit is at work through the church, the bride of Christ, to continue God's mission of redemption. And we, the new covenant people of God, look to the day. We, we indeed look to the day when Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. And as our creeds say, in his kingdom will have no end. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.